Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Rising. We have a really interesting lineup ahead of us. Robbie, what's in the show? Well, we're going to hear from our panelists reacting to Biden's remarks about the Buffalo shooting. And then Julia Manchester and Kelly Meyer will break down some of the Pennsylvania primary election results, other election results we had last night. Then we'll discuss why Biden is sending troops back to Somalia with a special guest. But first, an attorney for the Democratic lobbying firm Blue Star Strategies says the DOJ inquiry into the firm's lobbying efforts on behalf of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma has closed with no finding of any wrongdoing and a major sigh of relief for the president and his son, Hunter Biden. For context, Hunter allegedly brokered the deal between Blue Star and Burisma. This comes as Blue Star Strategies retroactively registered as a foreign agent just last week for arranging meetings between the State Department and Burisma. The Justice Department initially opened the investigation into Blue Star for potential illegal lobbying after Blue Star took on Burisma while Hunter served on the board. So I don't know if this resolution is going to really please or 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 make it a case closed situation for Republicans. I expect mm -hmm. there will still be some looking into this kind of stuff once Republicans retake Congress. Probably a lot of looking into this stuff. Probably the entire Republican agenda will be holding Hunter Biden accountable, <laughs> if I had to guess. <laughs> yeah, who knows, you know, anything. But the it, it reminds me of that saying that, you know, a lie goes around the world twice before the truth puts its shoes on or whatever. I mean, with these kinds of stories, the implication of wrongdoing, I think, does its damage regardless of what the outcome is. And I think you're right, the people Fair. who don't like who they don't like are going to keep liking, not liking that person regardless of if they're cleared. Trump's impeachment not resulting in him being, you know, actually impeached. It doesn't matter to any liberal who is critical of Donald Trump. So, I, and I guess they should have. Really, there there is wrongdoing clearly because they should have uh, registered as a foreign. They've done that now, but they the work they were doing on behalf of foreign agents was years ago. So they should have registered then, but they're doing it now. Yeah, so, I yeah. Don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, moreover, the laptop repair shop owner that serviced Hunter's uh, laptop in 2019 is speaking out about the FBI's interest, or rather disinterest, in the probe as well. According to the man's son, the FBI did not seem interested in reviewing Hunter's laptop and advised the repairman to lawyer up and not discuss the findings with anyone back in October of 2019. But now, contents of that laptop are available to the public. 26-year-old former Trump aide Garrett Ziegler uploaded nearly 130,000 emails from Hunter's laptop onto a public site. Ziegler described the emails as a modern Rosetta Stone of white and blue-collar crime. It's a powerful imagery. However, the Daily Mail reports 15,000 emails they previously verified are missing from the dump. The site BidenLaptopEmails.com even allows users to download the emails which includes the infamous 10% for the big guy message. So, you know, how, again, how much information in here is actually important or relevant? I don't know. Uh, it, it, what still gets me about this story, really, is, the, is that you were branded a conspiracy theorist, mm. a, a spreader of misinformation, a purveyor of lies to to claim that it was real and that they were authentic emails from Hunter Biden. That was something you couldn't say on Facebook, you couldn't say on Twitter. The mainstream media, again, accused you of being all those things if you said it. That went on for 
sometime, and we all know it's real. The guy exists. The laptop repairman is yeah. real. Yeah. Uh, he's p putting out a book. Um, I, I guess the theory was that he was fake or he didn't exist, and Russians had made it up, which never made any sense at all. Like, there's a guy with a laptop. It's it's like, Russians don't hire actors to portray like repair shop. Like that that wouldn't ha that didn't make any sense. So the the idea that like very serious minded journalists and content moderators say yeah it, it can't be real. Like, but the guy is real. So how could it not be yeah. real? And that that was that was my moment of when I was trying to understand. I'm like, okay, absolutely. Rudy Giuliani, shady character. Russians interested in this. That could be so. But if there's actually a laptop and there's actually a guy, like that can't be a that's not going to be a Russian yeah. situation. I think the implication <laughs> was that because it might benefit Russia's interests, that it was like fruit from the poisonous tree. Like we shouldn't trust the information just because. It may benefit someone who Democrats as a whole were oppositional to in that electoral context. However, this is the same thing that emerged. I, I've told this story before. You know, early on in the Bernie campaign, somebody called and asked me, a reporter was asking me about how I felt that there was all this Russian disinformation going on that was trying to target black Americans and say America has these racial problems and the Democratic Party isn't doing anything about it. I said, well, <laughs> where's the lie? America yeah, has these racial yeah. problems and the Democratic Party yeah. isn't doing anything about it. The best way to combat that kind of disinformation is with, by addressing the needs of your populace. And in this case, it seems like it, it's very frustrating that not a single intrepid journalist said it to even make their bones with trying to get to the bottom of the story because everyone seemed to buy this logic that doing so would help the enemy in some bizarre way. It wasn't even a direct claim that this stuff, you know, this stuff is, you know, I, I am Hunter Biden, and I'm saying this isn't real. No, it was everyone just kind of went along with the idea that we can't even investigate what is going on here because doing so would be advantageous to Russia. And that is an incredibly dangerous place to be in. The way Russian uh, lobbying or misinformation or, or, or collusion or interference is described in the media is something akin to hypnotism. It's like they're <laughs> hypnotizing people into voting yeah. for the wrong candidates. Yeah. But there's no reason... Um, Black Democrats would be dissatisfied with Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden on their own yeah. and not vote for them. They have to be they have to be confused by like like looking into the spirally eye or something, <laughs> whatever. The, but it's the rotating like black and white swirl yeah. that causes you to and then your eyes go. Oh. Yeah, like, yeah. That's how they describe it happening, and it's it's not <laughs> it's just not any of these pathetic efforts on Facebook. These like weird Facebook groups or weird accounts. Like if, if it was that easy to change people's minds or to get people to vote, they, they obviously weren't that invested in a Hillary Clinton presidency. Right. And isn't that her wrongdoing? Isn't that the campaign's wrongdoing? No, Robbie. Some... It was her turn. <laughs> <laughs> she, she cannot be... But no, it, right, she, cannot, she can only be failed. Yeah. She, can, she does not fail. We fail her or, yeah. or, the main, or whoever the mainstream Democratic Party is, which is why this, uh, the level of investment in, the, in Russia collusion interference from the media and the Democratic Party is, just, is very unhealthy for them because it allows them not to see the kind of flaws in their messaging uh, especially their messaging. Sometimes it's not even their policy. I, I, I don't like their policies. Republicans don't like their policies. But a lot of voters who I think do like their policies hate their messaging because it's insane. Right. They, they refuse to acknowledge that there's a such thing as legitimate criticism of their approach to anything. I have always been a believer. Look, again, I was not rooting for Hillary Clinton 
you know, I was a birdie supporter back in 2016. But what was so frustrating for me as a birdie supporter back then was that once he was out of the primaries, she still refused to acknowledge that there could be any credibility to people who were concerned about why she had taken so much money from these banks, about what, what you know, it wasn't just about the speeches, it was about this pay for play, as we had, we were closer to and coming out of, and a lot of us were young enough to still have been really dinged, um, our parents really dinged by the financial crisis in 2008. And she was there for that and wasn't accountable in any way for that. And it was suspicious and demoralizing. And the idea that she didn't understand that by just confronting it in an honest way, she could head off the criticism in a way that was meaningful and ultimately helped her in her efforts, instead of sitting there kind of smugly and saying, the only reason you could have these concerns is if you were a sexist. The only reason you could have these concerns is if you were in league with Russia or you were uh, a, a a right. terrible Bernie bro who just had it out for me. And that was frustrating because a lot of I think a lot of people don't give the public enough credit that we are we are willing to hear you out and accept an apology, frankly. But there's a special place in hell for women who don't <laughs> uh, stand up for other women, Brianna. So it's me. I, I'll, I I'll see you there with that. Uh, <laughs> <Mount> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, and I, to, to go back to the topic at hand, I predict this will not put the Hunter Biden story to bed whatsoever. There will be investigations massive investigations when Republicans retake Congress, which they're going to do. <laughs> so uh, next up, we will have your radar, which I'm looking forward to. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, of course, as you all know by now, 10 people were murdered in a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, by a self-described white supremacist who specifically sought out a predominantly black community and traveled 200 miles to kill black people. Among those killed were Roberta Dury, Dury age 32, who loved Whitney Houston, Ruth Whitfield, 86, a devoted grandmother, Celestine Cheney, 65, a breast cancer survivor, and Andre McNeil. 53, who was at the supermarket picking up a cake for his three-year-old son. Although some are trying to cast this homicidal event as just another murder in the context of a country that is always dealing with the consequences of having more guns than people, racism is not incidental to this story. In a lengthy document left by the killer, he explicitly lamented that because white populations on average have lower birth rates, that white people are making up a smaller and smaller proportion of the global and national population. To him, this is a problem. And his solution? To kill black people with a gun on which he had written, here's your reparations. As you've likely heard by now, the idea that white Americans are threatened by demographic changes is known as the Great Replacement Theory. It's a narrative that first gained traction on explicitly white supremacist websites before being mainstreamed by conservative commentators. In the wake of the Buffalo Massacre, Tucker Carlson has come under scrutiny as perhaps the most high-profile purveyor of this narrative. He, of course, does not advocate for physical violence against non-white populations or anyone. In fact, Tucker Carlson is fastidiously race-neutral in his language, frequently adopting the famous colorblind quote from Martin Luther King, and stressing that his interest is in protecting American culture and the American way of life. In fact, Fox News just tweeted this out on Monday. So what does Carlson say that has some liberals accusing him of culpability? Let's take a listen. Now, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current 
electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Let's say that again for emphasis because it is the secret to the entire immigration debate. Demographic change is the key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions. In other words, you're being replaced and there's nothing you can do about it. So shut up. <laughs> I mean, they're trying to change the population of the United States. And they hate it when you say that because it's true. Our country's being invaded by the rest of the world. I mean, to state unequivocally, the country's being stolen from American citizens as we watch. In political terms, this policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. Now, liberals interpret these statements about, you know, Americans, America being stolen, et cetera, as dog whistles, as veiled references to a white way of life. But Tucker Carlson never says that explicitly. And the more liberals accuse him of broadly being racist without being able to articulate why what he said is wrong, the more Tucker gains credibility and the more he entrenches his coveted victim status. He's primed his audience for exactly that type of you're a racist attack. Take a listen. A quick programming note, as the debate over immigration has risen to the top of the news in recent weeks, a number of figures on the left have denounced this show as racist. It's notable that not a single one of them has offered any evidence to support that slur or even bothered to rebut the arguments that we make every night. They just make loud noises about white supremacy and assume that's an argument. Of course, the rest of the media dutifully repeat that. Tucker's right. Liberals have largely been unspecific about what their concerns are with the great replacement rhetoric. But I will be. Tucker claims that his problem with immigration is that it will fundamentally change the voter roles of the country to benefit Democrats. This is an explicitly political argument, not a racial one, which is why the claims of racism fall flat. But there's no need to evoke racism to find some fault here. Take a listen to this. Really? The worst attack on our democracy in 160 years? How about the Immigration Act of 1965? That law completely changed the composition of America's voter rolls purely to benefit the Democratic Party. That seems like kind of an assault on democracy, a permanent one. But no, that was a good thing because in the end it helped Joe Biden. So in that clip, Tucker Carlson argues that the Immigration Act of 1965 was the greatest attack on our democracy since the Civil War. So what was the Immigration Act of 1965? Well, it eliminated the national origins quota system. Before 1965, Southern and Eastern Europeans, Asians, and other non-Western European or Northern European groups were severely limited in their ability to immigrate to this country. The Immigration Act of 1965 undid earlier discriminatory immigration acts like the Chinese Exclusion Act that explicitly barred racial groups, not on any type of merit-based system, but because they were considered to be from culturally or racially inferior countries. Now, the immigration system that Tucker speaks about nostalgically did get some big name approval from across the pond. One notable national leader said admiringly of our system, quote, the American Union categorically refuses the immigration of physically unhealthy elements and simply excludes the immigration of certain races, end quote. It's a nice compliment tarnished somewhat by the fact that it's a quote from Mein Kampf. Tucker expressly laments the end of an immigration system that established quotas based on the perceived unworthiness of not just non-whites, but Italians, Eastern Europeans, as well as Asians and Africans. Now, Italians and other European groups were considered white prior to the 20th century, but if you think their inclusion on this list makes the list not racist, that's perfectly fine. 
but it is reflective of a bias that has nothing to do with American ideals, whether these groups share American values or whether they make good citizens. And that's what Tucker says he cares about, the rights of American citizens and the preservation of an American way of life. In the earlier clip, he complained that Democrats were replacing old voters with new voters on the voter rolls. But I'm a little confused about that because all voters are American. Definitionally, only Americans can vote. So we have to ask what makes the new Americans inferior in his eyes to the old Americans. Why are legacy Americans more equal than non-legacy Americans? What makes someone who has worked hard and struggled through America's difficult immigration process, who has learned the presidents and state capitals and answers to questions that most native-born Americans probably can't answer, less worthy of participating in the society than someone whose family came in, let's say, the great immigration wave of the early 20th century? What is it about their character that makes them a bad fit? Now, Tucker is right about something. The Democrats have hoped that changing demographics will inure to their political benefit. Pundits like Steve Phillips, author of Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority, have traipsed the political circuit for years making this argument. And I hate it. In my view, people like Phillips are part of the rod at the center of the Democratic Party. They are responsible in significant part for its failures and are culpable in part for the rise of replacement theory. In a 2018 article at The Intercept, I criticized Phillips for arguing that America's growing non-white population is key to the Democratic Party's success, and that, quote, Democrats should not waste money appealing to white swing voters. The Democratic Party is useless today in part because it's been following Phillips' advice. For years now, the party has completely abandoned any effort to persuade voters of any race, to pass the policies they actually want, or even to speak with them with a modicum of respect. Part of the reason is that advisors like Phillips, a senior advisor at top liberal think tank Center for American Progress, believe that white votes are a deplorable lost cause. And non-white voters, they think, will inevitably vote for Democrats, no matter how much the Democratic Party abuses them. Remember when Joe Biden told black voters in 2020 that if they didn't vote for him, they ain't black? That was just a Democrat saying out loud what so many of them believe, that non-white votes belong to them. They don't need to be earned, but they were wrong. As I wrote back then, though much is made of the browning of America, the country is still 70% white, and electoral strategies that are wholly dismissive of that population set themselves at an unnecessary disadvantage. America's browning is largely attributed to the fact that Hispanics constitute the largest growing ethnic group in the country, but a majority of Hispanics identify as white, and one-third continue to support Donald Trump. The irony is that Phyllis's theory hasn't borne out. Democrats have so totally abandoned the working class, voters of all colors, that growing numbers of non-whites are looking for alternatives. Among Congress members, Republicans are the more vocal anti-interventionists right now. Marjorie Taylor Greene is out here outflanking squad members on the absurdity of giving aid to Ukraine while American babies starve. And Latinos are an important part of the Republican base. Now, this reality undermines Tucker's argument. Although he's right that Democrats hoped immigration changes would help them politically, they haven't. Not really. Not as much as people thought. Tucker doesn't have a strong electoral argument against immigrant populations who, on the whole, are more politically conservative and more religious than native-born Americans. And a slight liberal bias among first-generation immigrants disappears after a generation or two. They're ripe for Republican picking. And without the electoral case against immigration, I think it's fair to ask a hypothetical, as Tucker often does. What could be motivating him to see immigration as such an existential threat? 
whose existence is really imperiled right now. The white American lifespan is declining right now for the first time in American history. The opioid pandemic is a scourge made worse by the COVID pandemic and the lack of universal health care. Wages haven't kept up, kept up with inflation, and both corporate parties are aligned against raising the minimum wage, even though we haven't had a minimum wage raise for the longest period in American history, and even though Americans have never worked harder for less. When Carlson focuses his ire on corruption by elites, he's right on the nose. But the fact that he fully understands that it's elite capture that's causing so many Americans to hurt right now makes it difficult for me to understand how he thinks that a relatively small and powerless immigrant group deserves as much focus as the billionaires stalling our wages, poisoning our baby food, and ruining the country. And focusing on small, powerless individuals rather than big corporations in control is dangerous, literally. We need to be clear about what people like the Buffalo Shooter are talking about when he talks about the Great Replacement. They're not just talking about the natural immigration and population trends that have existed since the first immigrants walked out of East Africa. To replace something is to put something new in the place of something old. It implies the old thing has gotten rid of, not simply added to. The threat suggested by Great Replacement isn't just low white birth rates or average immigration rates. It's something more pernicious, something akin to white genocide. And in fact, the Buffalo murderer describes the declining birth rate as, quote, mass genocide. And genocide is defined as the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. That's not what immigrants do. That's what the Buffalo shooter did. He hunted down black people so they could be replaced with so-called legacy Americans, a term I find kind of funny given that few communities have as deep historical roots in America as black Americans. After all, the Atlantic slave trade was abolished in 1808, meaning that the American descendants of slaves arrived here sometime before then. We predate the huge wave of European immigrants that arrived in this country between 1880 and 1920. 20 million immigrants arrived during those 40 years, nearly double the number of Africans forcibly enslaved and sold into bondage in the Americas over the span of 400 years. At this country's founding, black Americans constituted 20% of the population and comprised 16.5% after the Civil War. But that didn't last long. By 1920, at the end of the great wave of European immigration, the original racial fabric of this country had changed. Legacy Americans, black Americans, had largely been replaced. Now, I'm not sincerely arguing for a black version of replacement theory. I'm drawing this historical analogy to make a point. The idea that rapidly changing demographics can politically disadvantage a population is nothing new, nor is the idea that some white Americans are so threatened by changing demographics that they feel empowered to murder blacks, Jews, Latinos, Asians, and Native Americans. Elites in this country have always understood that the best way to distract the public from their looting of wages and public wealth is to pit people against each other, to divide them up by their differences. Mainstream news pundits on both Fox and MSNBC would like to use racial strife as a deflection from core economic issues that hurt working people of all ethnic and national origins. That's why it's less important to focus on whether Tucker can be blamed for what happened in Buffalo and focus more on why there has been a proliferation of hateful rhetoric that makes working Americans see other powerless Americans as the source of their troubles, so much so that some folks resort to murder. We can't let this discourse replace important conversations about how we make this country live up to its ideals for all Americans together. 
And so I, I know that's a lot, but the point I just really wanted to make was that the conversation about Tucker, I think, is a little bit of a distraction from what the, the broader conversation about great replacement is doing and how much focus is being put on immigrants and immigration in a way that hasn't gotten enough scrutiny. Yeah, I, look, I think the best way to stop uh, the, the right from talking about the great replacement theory is just to point out what several of the things you pointed out in this radar, which is that it is not true that bringing in a lot of immigrant voters necessarily harms the GOP. As you pointed out, a lot of Hispanic voters, uh, actually, especially second generation, end up having conservative views. The Republican Party is recasting itself as a party for working class people, not just for white working class people, but for working class people. And it is gaining uh, regard among a, a lot of categories of workers and, and ethnic groups at Trump did really well in, in southern Texas, in Florida with specific immigrant groups. You know, the, the most hostile people to the GOP agenda are affluent white people right. in this country. <laughs> so, Legacy right. Americans. Right. So, it, like, that's right. true. And, and, and Tucker knows that because he rails against a lot of, the, you know, the college campus type people, some of the people I criticize a lot. So that, that's, uh, I, I think that's the, I mean, there are many knocks against the Great Replacement Theory, but that's, I think that, if, if that should be the one that, hopefully would persuade the GOP that it, 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 it can win with immigrants. It's doing it. It's doing it. Well, I think immigration is always just going to be a hot button political yeah. topic. So I don't know if there's any getting rid of it, if there's any getting rid of railing against it. Um, one group is going to rail against it or the other group is going to because they view it as, yeah, as being used as a way, I mean, not not to use the term great replacement, but certainly they they see it as a threat, as a political threat, saying, well, this uh, the other political party is trying to import in people that are aligned with them. And I think that that argument is as old as time. I don't think that is new to Tucker Carlson or new to the climate that we're in right now politically. Uh, and if it weren't immigration, it would be something else. And it is other things, right? I mean, we're seeing constantly this pointing the finger, as you mentioned, Brianna, not focusing on the real issues that are causing the strife in middle-class America, the stuff that's actually harming the ability to buy homes and go on family vacations once a year, you know, the, the good to live the American dream, the stuff that's attacking that, um, you know, we're not focusing on that at all. Instead, we're doing a lot of finger pointing and it's either it's immigrants or it's going to be uh, you know, woke liberals and trying to get rid of police officers, or it's going to be, you know, the crit critical race theory, or or it's Nazis and everybody's a right winger. You know, there's always some sort some sort of finger pointing and mm -hmm. blaming, and and most of it is unproductive. But I don't think we're going to get rid of the immigration debate in this country. I think it's just a debate that's been as old as time, and it's been around forever. And I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, liberals talk about their own version of great replacement theory, so they don't have to talk about the real issues. And Republicans are happy to talk about these kind of culture wars, not have to talk about the real issues. And I'd love for everyone just to wake up and not be uh, so seduced by it. Uh, thank you guys both for your engagement there. But next up, Project Veritas is out with a new leaked video of a Twitter executive spilling the tea, this time with a direct hit against Elon Musk. Stick around for that. Project Veritas has another leaked video of a Twitter exec making comments about Elon Musk's Asperger's and free speech. Let's listen. Well, right now we don't make profit, so it's going to say ideology, which is what's led us to not being profitable. The rest of us who have been here 
believe in something that's good for the planet and not just to give people free speech. Because again, like, these people really do believe in what we're doing. These are the policies we've put in place for misinformation or mislabeling media or whatever. Yeah. Why do you think this should be taken down? Yeah. Like, those are the questions they're going to ask him. Yeah. 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 And it's going to be hard for him to be like, oh, because people should make their own decision. It's like, no, but people don't know how to make a rational decision if you don't put out correct things that are supposed to be out in the public. As an advertiser, as my business, is what I do every day and why I go out is like, we want it to be as fair and transparent and accurate as possible. Yeah. And if that means there, there's a level of censorship to make it correct, quote unquote, again, and what does correct mean? I guess like, it just kind of goes into the idea of like, well, what is correct? If we're implementing all these rules that there's, and Elon wants to dismantle them, then technically our ideology has led us to not making money because we're not making money. And Elon wants to turn it the other way so that we can make money. There's a statement they need all 7,000 people to say. And so they can't like tell us the like, the real truth. He has Asperger's. Yeah, yeah, I know that. So he's special. Your special needs, you're literally special needs. <laughs> so I can't even take what you're saying seriously. Musk replied to the video saying Twitter exec trashing free speech and mocking people with Asperger's, uh, yeah. which is what's going on in the video, which is a very, yeah, very, very bad look there. And I think it's terrible that someone who works at Twitter has that uh, mindset. It's a mindset we completely disagree with. I still can't, you know, entirely get around the whole you know, you're being secretly recorded, you're, you know, maybe complaining about your job and at work, not in a in an environment where you'd necessarily think, yeah, obviously over that's cocktails, the point. That's over what, what seemed like a lot of cocktails. A lot of right. cocktails, which obviously is exactly what O'Keefe tries to do. He's doing that intentionally. His view is that he gets people to, you know, reveal the truth. Again, we kind of already know everything there about the kind of person who works at Twitter and how they feel about these things. So I don't, I don't like love the idea of just embarrassing people when they're out drinking and thinking that they're you know free to kind of complain about their jobs. Probably a lot of people would complain about their jobs under you know certain circumstances like that. So you know that that aside, well, but, but is, it, it is he should not. It's yeah. Don't don't make fun I, of people with Aspergers, it, obviously. Right, but this is a little bit different because you know Twitter has denied that they've ever done any sort of uh, censoring, that they're not ideologically bent. They've denied it over and over and over again. And now you have an executive on camera saying, well, yeah, you know, we do it, essentially. So, I mean, right. even, we, so with the other guy that they caught on tape for Project Veritas, I don't even know who, I think he was a guy that only works at Twitter part-time or some people right. saying that he only clocks in like four hours a week or something like that. This is a little bit different because this was a lead client partner. This was somebody who is selling advertisement from what I understand on the platform. And uh, if that's the case, then they are admitting that at least they have a culture of censoring, that they don't trust us to make up our own minds, that they have to feed us the information because they're saying, well, you're not smart enough with the information, all the information out there to make the right choice. We have to help you make right choices by giving you right information. So I think it's actually kind of a big deal that they're admitting it at least over cocktails to Project Veritas, I suppose. Yeah, but but what if the person, but my only thing, what if 
the person asking those questions is trying to elicit that response. And he like just because he's saying that to this person, this person is not being honest. The, 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 you know, the Project Veritas person, obviously, is not being honest. So then, you know, what if this person is just telling him what he wants to hear? What if this person is being like, yeah, oh, my God, are you, are you taking care of all this disinformation? I'm so scared about it. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, we, we're not going to let people say whatever they want. Like, he's saying that to put the per- – maybe he, he was portraying himself as a liberal, so he's trying to, you know, reassure them. So that's the only – you know, you can't – well, if it's under false pretenses to begin with, you have to be a little skeptical of the answers you get. Except that we have a lot of other verifiable <laughs> like facts and information and just experiences that make us believe yeah. what he's saying is true. Well, right. I, I think I basically think we already have confirmation that they do that without even. Well, what is hearing. what is the argument here, actually, for what we think the standard should be at Twitter? Is it that it should be a wild, wild west where there's absolutely no content moderation whatsoever? No, I don't think anybody really thinks that there should be no content moderation. Even I mean, Elon Musk doesn't want- think that, right? I, I don't think anybody really believes that there should be no content moderation whatsoever on any platform. I think everybody agrees that illegal, harmful acts, you know, if it's illegal, for example, it shouldn't be on the platform. Twitter, though, is actually pretty relaxed. I mean, they allow pornography, like fairly explicit pornography on their platform. I don't you, you I guess you could choose to see it or not or however they, they do their filter on that. But I don't think people are advocating for, you know, whenever there is this free speech discussion, that's where it always tends to go. People always say, well, you know, you can't be a, a free speech absolutist. Although, well, that, well that's uh, why you're right, Brianna. I'm just I trying to pin you. down that, like, it, it doesn't sound nice when the guy is like, well, we can't just give everybody free speech. And I understand that it's in this broader cultural context. But if we just stop kind of talking in a way that's react- reactive to what that guy says and say uh, affirmatively what we hope to happen on the platform. Even Elon Musk has said, well, of course, there has to be content moderation guidelines. So what does that look like? I think that's a harder task than most people will admit and why we're exactly in this conversation. Because at some point, somebody has to decide. And And it doesn't have to be the First Amendment, as as you're pointing out. Like, free speech is... Right, what the government is allowed to stop you from saying is very the that's a different right. bar than what a private company's right. And the, and the issue I think with Twitter has been the lack of transparency, and with Facebook and a lot of these apps has been the lack of transparency and the fact that yes, there are at times these political motives that we've talked about a lot in the last week that also hurt the left and the right. The people outside of the establishment get really dinged by these sorts of things, and so I do think that sometimes we, there can be an alarmist sort of reaction when people are like, well, of course there can't be free speech when in fact. That is not the part that's terrifying. We all understand that that's the baseline of any of these content moderation platforms. The question is, who decides and how do they decide and can they do so in a transparent way? Right, right. And we do. We've had guests on the show trying to have their own social uh, media platforms. There was that. He's a Trump advisor. uh, Jason Miller. Is that it's uh, right? And and he was uh, I forget which one he was involved with. And right. And we put a couple. He he said, yes, it's going to be a free speech site. Like, well, what about this? What about that? Well, not that. And like there is where the line is there. It's sometimes not clear or where the line ought to be drawn. People have different ideas. But I I think that what I am excited about with Musk is that he seems to want to draw the line a little less soon or allow more kinds of political conversation. I think that would be helpful. I think it's better to maybe say free ideas, you know, a mm -hmm. platform that's free of free for any idea rather than just saying free speech, because I do think we get kind of caught up in the minutia of what that means exactly. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, look, you know, nobody's really advocating for absolute free speech, but certainly a freedom of exchange of ideas 
that is what's missing. And that is what the Twitter executive is basically saying. Yeah, we don't want that, though, because if we give you the free uh, the ability to exchange ideas freely, you're going right. to harm the planet. Is essentially right. because it's, spam is spamming messages are free speech, right? They're not illegal under the First Amendment. Elon Musk says he wants less of that on the platform. And I think that's absolutely fine. And it's, it's good that you can make some content decisions that would not be ones the government could make that to right. improve the user experience. The problem is many of the platforms have gone way too far and are you know, policing beyond and you know, preventing us from being able to think of all the issues we've had with YouTube, preventing us from having right. discussions that would be in the public interest that we ought to be able to have. So Yeah, just reporting news. Can't even just report right. news. But uh, Musk did tell the All In podcast on Monday that he plans to vote Republican in the upcoming elections, despite voting for Team Blue historically. He also stated stated that he considers himself a moderate. So yeah. another I, uh, I another immigrant, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, replacing the native population, but actually having right wing views, as it turns out. Yet more examples of that. All right. Well, coming up, authorities have uncovered a trove of messages from the Buffalo shooting suspect. So we'll definitely discuss that with our rising panel. More than 600 pages of messages appear to show the Buffalo supermarket shooting suspect's months-long plan to carry out the attack, according to CBS News. The messages, which are thought to have been written on the social media platform Discord, show his unfolding plan to, quote, kill as many black people as he could. The messages began in November and contain racist and anti-Semitic words and language. Now, of the 13 people killed or wounded, 11 were black. President Joe Biden on Tuesday called white supremacy a poison in America and called on Americans to reject the racist white replacement theory believed to have inspired the gunman behind the Buffalo shooting. The president said he condemns those who spread the lie for power and political gain and for profit. Let's watch some of that. So to the families, from your pain, may we find purpose to live life worthy of the loved ones you lost. Editor-in-chief at The Real News Network, Max Alvarez, and Newsweek contributor Denise Long join us to discuss. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thanks, guys. All right. Let's start with you, Denise. You know, I was watching some of the coverage of Joe Biden's remarks, and one thing that was interesting to me was the gap between the really explicit racism of the manifesto, his, you know, description of him attempting purposefully to seek out a black neighborhood and kill black people because he believes in white supremacy. He self-describes as a white supremacist. And then the language in the news, which kind of, you know, used a lot of alleged white supremacist, you know, alleged hate crime. Um, you know, is this white supremacy still was hanging in the in the in the wings? And I'm not sure what a person has to do to, to get rid of some of those caveats. What have you made of some of this coverage? Yeah, that's an interesting point. And so I don't know if that's supposed to be some kind of litigation, uh, you know, preventing litigation mm -hmm. from the person who is accused. Uh, that's the only reason that I can think of. But would it be okay to say he is a self-described uh, white supremacist? Would that be an accurate portrayal of this particular person and what they did? And there are many things that are happening, many ways media is languaging this thing about him. I have also heard that people are calling it rambling and illogical and nonsensical. And while people who read the manifesto may not come to the conclusion that they would seek violence given the data that clearly made uh, this man uncomfortable, um, he clearly did. And it made perfect sense to me 
what he was saying. And let's also remember that he was 100% successful in what he aimed to do. Uh, It made sense. It worked for him. And the only thing that didn't work was him being able to go on after murdering many people in the grocery store to also murder people in the community. Mm. I mean, I guess it depends if you think that you know, by default, someone who goes and murders a bunch of people at a supermarket, that's a that's a crazy thing to do. So regardless of what the underlying ideology is, and, you know, he's someone who has clearly careened from one extremist ideology to another in the way that many of these kinds of shooters have sought out more extreme and more extreme things in order to, you know, kind of have some sort of meaning or or part of attachment to some group. Um, You know, what do you make of all this, Max? I mean, human beings are complex, right? I mean, we are a mixture of, you know, homegrown thoughts and feelings and prejudices, and those interact with the world that we're a part of. And so as much as, you know, a person's uh, personal psychological condition is a factor here, the rest that I think we're all talking about is a factor as well the kinds of influences that shape how you think, how you feel, the kinds of downwardly mobile social economic pressures, right, that that continue mm-hmm. to encourage people to think like this and to look for scapegoats um, for the life, for not being able to live the life that they feel they were promised or live up to the America they believed they were promised. I mean, it's, it's complex, but I think, you know, Brie and Denise are, are right. You don't have to read this whole manifesto, but if you read some of it, it's not, you know, chicken scratch scrawled in blood on a wall. Like it is a very kind of thought out, um, you know, screed that identifies very clearly who this person thinks uh, is the collective enemy, um, you know, what the quote unquote solution is. And, you know, that's that's exceedingly terrifying, which is ultimately, you know, the goal of this action. And so I know we're going to and talk more about this, but I, the one thing I, I kind of wanted to say, right, is that, like Denise said, the, the, the goal was achieved. This was an act of terrorism, and people are terrified, and people have been terrified. And, and you know, I, I just wanted to express my deepest condolences and solidarity with everyone in Buffalo and beyond who is feeling uh, terrorized right now because, you know, we, we recognize that, right? We can acknowledge it in each other's eyes when we pass each other on the street. I remember um, black colleagues and brown colleagues just looking at me and look and I'm me looking back at them after 2019, the El Paso shooting where uh, another gunman walked into a, a, a Walmart, killed 23 people, targeting mainly Latinos, but Patrick Crucius was also citing the Great Replacement Theory. Uh, he also cited the Christchurch mosque shooting in New Zealand as a sort of inspiration for what he was doing. So whether it's a Walmart in El Paso, a top supermarket in Buffalo, or Dylan Roof shooting up the Emanuel African Methodist P- Episcopal Church in Charleston, what I want to emphasize is that a t- on top of being uh, uh, intellectually kind of sound, 
these people are f***ing cowards. They attack us in supermarkets. They attack us in our places of worship. They are, they, they are weak, and they take that weakness out on people who have nothing to do with, this, with the kind of problems that they're talking about. And that should tell you something about how poisonous this really is. If you can look at someone going to pick up a birthday cake for his son's wedding, or, or sorry, his son's uh, birthday in, in Buffalo, and see them as somehow the enemy of all the social ills that we're living with, you know, what kind of ideology is that? And anyone who supports that is also a coward. Yeah, I, that's really well said, Max. And I think in some ways, the conversation about particular conservative media figures who have talked about the great uh, replacement theory has distracted from the prevalence of the great replacement theory generally in the public. And the idea that it is there regardless of whether or not someone like Tucker Carlson talks about it on his show, that Tucker is somebody who looks at the landscape of what's being spoken about in the media and pulls what is popular. He is not originating a lot of these things. And that even if it were, you know, uh, a result of someone being crazy, obviously most people who are mentally ill don't kill anybody. We still, so we still have to have a conversation about why these acts of violence are being expressed in these particularized ways and what that says broadly about what's going on in society. And I think your point about why people who experience very real stressors and harms and economic precarity feel like the answer is shooting people in a supermarket instead of looking at any number of other factors, especially in a city like Buffalo, which is so um, economically depressed and segregated, as many people have pointed out. Speaking of Buffalo as a municipality, India Walton, um, who ran uh, for mayor of Buffalo, sh shared this harrowing clip of people calling for help during the terrifying attack. What you saw this afternoon I didn't really see much at all. I just heard the gunshots and just dropped down to the ground and just waited for him to stop. And he just wouldn't stop. So I tried to call 911 and I was whispering because I could hear him close by. And when I whispered on the phone to 911, the, the dispatcher would start yelling at me saying, why are you whispering? You don't have to whisper. And I'm trying to tell her like, ma'am, He's in the story. He's shooting as an active shooter. I, I'm scared for my life. And she said something crazy to me, and then she hung up in my face. And I had to call my boyfriend and tell him to call 911. Hmm, well, that is certainly unfortunate, Leticia. Um... What you... Oh, my God. Yeah, so here we have... Obviously, there was heroism displayed in the store, the security guard who ultimately tried to take down the shooter and was killed, um, you know... All, all of the thoughts and prayers to his family and the world. But we also have this evidence, again, that there have been some failures from law enforcement as people in the store were trying to call for help and being told, basically, that they needed to just talk louder as there was an active shooter in their midst. You know, Denise, what do you make of that recording? I am astounded, <laughs> even though it's not the first such failure in 911 that I have heard, I think it lends toward a serious, and I do mean serious conversation and course correction about the institutions that are responsible for what happened in Buffalo and in many other places, because this person is not the first one to do this. We need to talk about the absolute failure of Alejandro Mayorkas and 
Homeland Security. We need to talk about the failure of government officials who have leaned into this idea about critical race theory and arguing the need to implement anti-racism and teach our children, explicitly teach our children to not be racist. We need to talk about the ways that Joe Biden himself in his 50 years mm. in public service has befriended racists and legitimized their existence uh, because they didn't call him boy. Right. Um, there are ways that people's I'm going to find nice words for this. There need to be some serious accountability. Some people need to lose their jobs. Some institutional policies, recruitment, retention strategies need to be adjusted post haste. Uh, this 911 center and whatever is happening there as well as around the country needs to be among them. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, but I, I hate this trend of the you know the politi uh, political figure uh, Ka Governor Kathy Hochul was you know talking about how this is all social media's fault. Well, this is a law enforcement failure. This guy was known to law enforcement, as is often the case. Was the case with the Parkland shooter, where there was every failure. The FBI knew about that guy. They didn't do right. anything. They didn't do the right thing. Don't blame other people. And so, listening to that nine uh, nine one one call, just really really sickening. Uh, the the callousness, the indifference of the people. Mm -hmm. Who are who are you know paid who are on the by the taxpayers to to protect us to to perform emergency service just that it's really it's really sickening what's what's your reaction Max? Basically that um, you know it is incredibly sickening and you know what's even more sickening or not more sickening equally sickening right is that. Um, I fear we're going to do what we always do. We're going to see this as somehow, you know, like a failure that can be fixed by throwing more money at the damn police. Mm -hmm. They got plenty of police. We saw the Buffalo, Buffalo police in full force. Remember when the George Floyd protests were happening? They pushed over that poor old guy whose head split open. We know they got police, right? <laughs> you know, and so it, it makes me think of the systematized callousness that is the policing system in this country and how that connects to the broader kind of historical forces that have created this horrific situation that we're all living in. I look around me. I live in Baltimore, right? Baltimore is a city that spends more on police per capita than any city in the world. And this kind of crap happens every single day. It is not a bug. It is a feature of the system. This is a town that has been economically and, and policy wise um, immiserated for decades. It is losing population. There are whole segments of the population, poor, predominantly black, that are policed to all hell. And you have police officers on record and, and showing repeatedly by their actions that they look at the black citizens of this town like the shooter in Buffalo looks at them, as invaders, as animals, as mongrels, to be controlled, to be funneled in to a prison industrial complex that takes them out of society. This is something that we live with every day, and it is something that is, multiple people are responsible for this, to your point, Robbie. And that includes, you know, Joe Biden and the Democrats. That includes the Republicans, not just them. But I wanted to kind of end on that point, because remember when Joe Biden, to Denise's point, 
he, he's, he's multiple times kind of longingly talked about the days when you could sit down and have lunch with segregationist mm -hmm. legislators and still have that sort of civility. What was happening while y'all were sitting at that table having lunch? People were being lynched at the same time that you were trying to coddle the most reactionary elements in your colleagues and saying, we can sit down, we can compromise here, and people are getting shot up. Stop compromising with this. Stamp it out. Force everyone in elected office to actually take a stand against this, and 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 because this is not going to stop. And it and Biden, one thing Biden said that was right is that this is a poison, and that poison runs deep in the veins of America. I grew up with proto versions of this, hearing from right wing talk radio that what the Democrats wanted to do was open the borders, flood the country with illegal immigrants who were going to have anchor babies who were going to then build an indomitable voting block for the Democratic Party. Like that is batshit stuff, but it was very much mainstreamed, and there are a lot of current legislators who believe that. So this isn't going to go away just by taking Trump off Twitter, by ramping up you know, censorship uh, on, on social media. It's not going to help by throwing money at the police. That poison runs deep, and to Denise's point, we need to take a long, hard look at where it comes from and actually be serious about ridding ourselves of it. Otherwise, this terror will persist. Yeah, so Denise, we want to give you the last word. I, I do think, um, I, now I agree that the theory is insane. It's not even turning out to be true necessarily that bringing in immigrants are, is some massive coup for the Democratic Party because immigrants are not a unitary voting block. Actually, many immigrants are religious and plenty of them like Trump. Trump has done well with specific immigrant groups. Uh, so it, it doesn't make sense. There was a lot of, I think, gl almost gl gloating or gleeful sort of in the Obama era about how we're going to have more immigration and we're going to be the Democratic Party is going to be unstoppable now that gave some some rise to this fear that, again, I, I don't think is true. It has not turned out that way at all. But we'll give you the last word, Denise. So there are some elements of truth to this that we need to acknowledge as well. The reality is that the white population globally has been increasing for generations, right? The white population in the United States has been increasing. More white De people are decreasing. dying than are decreasing. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you for that. Decreasing. More white folks are dying than are being born. We do have an immigration control issue in the United States of America. Democrats and Republicans are responsible for not enforcing immigration laws. All of that said does not mean you need to go out and kill people while they are grocery shopping or doing whatever, right? right? So there are ways people that we People who've been here as long as white right. people. <laughs> shooting well, black people who've been in this country as long right. as white people. And or, and or longer, and, right. including Ruth Whitfield, who is a descendant of slaves, an 86-year-old woman descendants of slaves stopped by the grocery store after visiting her husband. So there are some things that policymakers need to do, including immigration control. This is not a gun control issue. This is a white supremacy issue, right, that needs to be addressed. This is an anti-Black racism issue that, as Max says, runs through America. So let's keep the topic on what it needs to be focused on. And there are policy issues that need to be played out. And the way that we talk about them can create anxiety in people who have a warrior mentality and may act on what they hear in a way that causes damage to the rest of us. Max and Denise, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about this uh, really uh, difficult and obviously horrifying uh, subject. Thanks so much. Thanks, thank you guys. for the time. We'll be back with more Rising right after this.
We're taking a look at the winners and losers from last night's primaries. First, let's talk about the Keystone State. Democrats in Pennsylvania chose left-leaning John Fetterman for their candidate for Senate on Tuesday. Fetterman, often clad in gym shorts rather than your typical politician's attire, ran on an agenda geared toward the working class. As Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Jonathan Tamari noted, Fetterman critics questioned whether he could appeal to black voters and or suburbanites. In Allegheny County, home to PGH and wealthy burbs and both Fetterman and Lamb, Fetterman has 59% of the vote to Lamb's 37%. Kenyatta is at 3% uh, out of an estimated 68% of the vote counted. Fetterman suffered a stroke just before the election but appears to be recovering fine, though it is not yet known when he will return to the campaign trail. Meanwhile, for Republicans, the race is still too close to call with Dr. Oz, who was endorsed by former President Trump, and David McCormick going into overtime. Here to help us break down the results is Washington, D.C. correspondent for News Nation, Kelly Meyer, and political reporter for The Hill, Julia Manchester. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank yes, you. thanks for joining us. So, Kelly, what, what were the big takeaways uh, in your mind from last night? Well, it was a busy night, a long night, and still not over yet. You know, we saw this neck and neck race with uh, David McCormick and Dr. Mehmet Oz. I was over at Dr. Oz's uh, election night, primary night headquarters, and you could feel the room and the shift in the room around 10 p.m. Eastern when you started to see McCormick uh, pulling ahead of Oz. And you, you can almost hear a pin drop, just everyone focused on the mm. screen, watching the returns coming in. And then as the, the hour went on and we got closer to 11 o'clock, uh, you know, they, we started to hear some applause and people cheering and saying, you know, this is looking up. We're seeing this get closer, moving into this recount territory uh, in Pennsylvania. If it's uh, less than or equal to 0.5 percent, it automatically triggers uh, a, a recount there of the total vote. Um, so it's really interesting to see this. Um, you know, we saw Kathy Barnett, who was um surging in the past few days uh she ended up now third place she gave a speech last night not uh conceding the race or anything like that but you know interested in see where that vote went and if there is a recount here to see where those votes get divided with barnett into mccormick and oz oz obviously the trump-backed candidate so interesting to see the the trump effect there but even some voters i talked to here on the campaign trail in pennsylvania one volunteered for Trump in 2016 and 2020 and then was volunteering for McCormick and says nothing against Trump. She still likes Trump, but she really liked McCormick and his endorsement of Dr. Oz didn't make a difference for her. She wanted to vote with McCormick, who she wanted to vote for. Right. The uh, the McCormick-Oz uh, race did split a lot of even uh, top level Trump people, I think. It, uh, some were uh, some that had already decided on McCormick were upset that Trump came in and endorsed Dr. Oz. Uh, not that they can obviously mm -hmm. control uh, what what Trump does. Julia, you know, what what were you following last night? You know, I think from my perspective and kind of looking at it from a 30,000 foot view angle, um, this Trump's endorsement really on the GOP side, I think there's a lot of questions as to how strong it was in Pennsylvania. Look, I think we saw President Trump come into that race as expecting really to pull Dr. Oz over the finish line. And even if Dr. Oz does end up winning this primary, it's not going to be by a lot. I mean, it seems like we're headed towards a runoff. You know, what is it? 0.3, 0.2 percentage points are uh, separating him and David McCormick. So I think that race 
raises a lot of questions for the Trump brand. And I will add this, Pennsylvania is a closed primary, meaning that only Republican candidates, uh, Republican voters, excuse me, can vote in that primary and Democratic vote voters can vote in that respective primary. So you're only hearing really from the party's grassroots. And if Trump's endorsement wasn't enough to really sway a big majority of the party's grassroots, that raises a lot of questions in my mind as to how viable his endorsement is in that state. And on top of that, you also have him seeing losses in North Carolina, for example, with Madison Cawthorn, that congressman facing a number of scandal uh, scandals over the past couple of months. And of course, Governor Brad Little winning against Trump's endorsed candidate Janice McEachin um, in that primary in Idaho, for example. At the same time, Trump did get a win in North Carolina with uh, Congressman Ted Budd winning that Senate primary. But, you know, look, I think last night mm. left mm. me with a lot of questions about the viability. Well, Jade, there were a lot of progressive wins last night, as we mentioned. John Fetterman won big, despite there already being some prognostications about whether or not his progressivism is going to hurt him uh, in the general election. Uh, Chris Wallace was on CNN asking if his support of universal checks and legalizing pot is going to hurt him, even though those things are overwhelmingly popular. Uh, Summer Walker won her race. uh, Sorry, Summer Lee, rather, won her race. Um, uh, Chris Booker won his race. To what do you attribute some of those? Uh, progressive successes? You know, I think a lot of it has to, oh, I'm sorry. No, please go ahead. I think a lot of it has to do with that grassroots organizing for progressives. I think they really stepped it up this cycle. Look, you know, last cycle in 2021 and for example, the Buffalo mayoral race or in Virginia, we saw progressives not performing as well as I think a lot of people could have expected them to, especially in some of these mayoral races that took place last year. But, you know, I would say that in Oregon, for example, Kurt Schrader being ousted by Jamie McCloyd Skinner in Oregon's fifth district, that was a huge win for progressives and a major loss for the establishment. Also, um, you know, I would say even more so maybe than Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania I think John Fetterman, you know, yes, I think his progressive credentials that can potentially be um, attributed to his win, but he's also a lieutenant governor. He's won statewide election before. He's a well-known commodity in that state. So, you know, look, good night for progressives going forward, but it'll be interesting to see if that they can keep up that momentum, for example, going into some of these primary runoffs in Texas next week, for example. Yeah, I think that credibility point is also true of, of Summer Lee, how well you're known in the district outside um, of the election that you're in really makes a difference when all of the dark money that has been you know, leveraged against progressives recently starts flowing in. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Kelly, I wanted to ask you what you think about uh, how Trump might be taking what went on last night because obviously you know we all we all want to know if he's actually going to run again uh the sense really is that it depends right on how powerful and influential he still thinks he is in the party obviously he is powerful and influential to a great extent but what how well his candidates are doing matter so you know what is what is what is trump taking from all of this is this a is is this a good outcome for Trump world. 
Well, it's an interesting test. And for him to kind of test the waters by endorsing these candidates in these races, it really was a mixed bag, as Julia touched on there, too. You know, we had a Trump endorsed candidate in North Carolina with Ted Budd. You had uh, an endorsed candidate with Madison Cawthorn not win the race. So there you had uh, with the Trump test, Budd passing, Cawthorn not passing. You had here in Pennsylvania, Mastriano, Trump endorsed candidate for governor passing this test. You have Oz. We're not so sure yet. Uh, but it's interesting with that race, you know, you have McCormick, who we talked with on Monday, saying, you know, he supports Trump. He is, um, you know, happy to have members of his White House were there with him. Hope Hicks at his rally on Monday. Um, so you're seeing still this kind of Trump world surrounding McCormick, even though he didn't get the Oz endorsement. So it's interesting. They're pulling on these strings of Trump still, uh, but also kind of going their own path at the same time. So it's interesting where uh, his effect comes into play in this. And what, you know, I'm sure he's watching. I'm sure he's still, you know, focusing on his wins in these states um, and then seeing what happens as they head into the midterms. And of course, testing, uh, you know, his viability and what this might look for him if he tries to make another go at the presidency. Well, there were a few other races of consequence yesterday. Freshman congressman from North Carolina, Madison Cawthorn, as we've mentioned, lost his reelection campaign to Chuck Edwards. And in Kentucky, Charles Booker won the Democratic primary for Senate, sets up a race against Senator Rand Paul in November. Uh, yeah, Julia, you know, the, the Madison Cawthorn situation, obviously, I think is a is a pretty unique one, is not really a test of of Trump's power or lack thereof, the, you know, the number of scandals uh, involving him, a lot of self-inflicted wounds, the comments he made about cocaine parties and orgies, the, his kind of, I, I think, a level of immaturity that even they penetrated some of the, you know, the hardest of, of the hardcore uh, Trump supporters and, and people who had supported him in the past. So is, is, that, you know, is there anything else going on there that we should take away from it? I think that's an absolutely fair point to say that Madison Cawthorn was obviously facing a very different and unique situation compared to other Trump back candidates. I will say that Trump still endorsed him, and I think there could have been the hope on Trump's part to potentially pull him over the finish line. That obviously didn't happen. Um, look, you know. I think a lot of Republicans this morning are breathing a bit of a sigh of relief, though. Madison Cawthorn was a huge headache, especially to Republicans on the Hill, especially to uh, minority leader Kevin McCarthy. You know, those of us that, you know, run around the Capitol asking members questions all day, you know, Republicans want to be asked about inflation, crime and the border. Well, instead, they were asked about what was Madison Cawthorn getting into next. They don't want to talk about that. So that's why you saw Senator Tom Tillis putting so much money behind his primary challenger, Chuck Edwards. But, you know, still a bit of a break between between Trump and the rest of the GOP establishment on the Hill and endorsing Cawthorn. Um, you know, I think it shows that Trump's endorsement maybe wasn't that strong enough to have him overcome uh, those difficulties he was facing as a result of those scandals. But I think most people who would have endorsed uh, Madison Cawthorn would have had the same. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and Kelly, what do you think is the difference between Ohio and Pennsylvania? Because the, the, the uh, Josh Mandel, J.D. Vance race where Trump endorses J.D. Vance and, and he was behind. And then it, you can look in the polling. It seems like a, he got a really sizable bump from that, put him into, you know, he kind of cleanly won that race. But in the Pennsylvania race, it, does, it's the, it's, it's too, it did not, 
do and maybe it helped Dr. Oz. It did not do enough uh, to to make to give him the clean win that J.D. Vance got. Is there some difference there that you know we're missing? Well, it's interesting because people compare Ohio and Pennsylvania a lot. There are a lot of similarities, but I will say, being from Pennsylvania and talking with voters here this week on the campaign trail, I will say they just voted how they felt. Like we were saying with that one example, who was a Trump supporter, still is a Trump supporter, but still voted for McCormick. So for folks here in Pennsylvania, I would say it's it's hard to predict how they might vote. And, and as Julie mentioned too, you know, we only heard from those that are registered Republican and Democrat. We don't know for the independent votes how they're going to sway. That could completely change. And we also still don't know how this race is going to go. I am still in Pennsylvania, as you can tell, in my hotel room. Uh, we are going to continue our coverage here um, for Next Our News Nation, uh, you know, through the day, waiting to see if we may hear if someone pulls ahead or if this is going to move, you know, into recount territory. And, you know, we don't know yet if Trump's effect here worked, if that endorsement worked for Oz. But I will just say that we are seeing these voters um, vote with who they like, uh, despite who endorsed them or what they may say. They are going with them for whatever personal reasons they have, what they're dealing with in their community, what issues matter to them. I think that's what stands out here for Pennsylvanians. Well, a similar issue has been emerging in the Democratic Party where so many progressive candidates have found themselves under more attack from the establishment than they have a lot of their uh, conservative opponents. Uh, Charles Booker's uh, race is interesting for progressives to watch because the last time he ran in 2020 against Amy McGrath, many people in the establishment said that they had to support Amy because Kentucky would never go for a progressive populist, that they needed to support someone who was barely left of the Republican Party herself, but who had these kind of trappings of having served in the military, et cetera, that people thought was going to help, were going to help her play in the state. And of course, she was not successful. What are we reading into this matchup uh, between uh, Booker uh, and Paul coming up this fall? I'll put that to you, Julia. <laughs> Yeah, look, I think it's um, it's going to certainly be exciting to watch. It'll be interesting to see the grassroots efforts that are put behind Booker from progressives in Kentucky. I think it will be an uphill climb for Booker, like it is for any Democrat running in a statewide race in Kentucky. It's a red-leaning state. Um, so we'll have to see you know, where that populist energy goes, if it can transform into something bigger um, come November. But it's interesting that you make that point about um, Charles Booker and his primary against Amy McGrath a couple of years ago, because it sort of reminds me of Fetterman right yeah. now. He was running, not saying him and uh, Booker are similar. I mean, they're progressives, but there's obviously some differences there. But, you know, this is once again a progressive candidate who last election cycle was really pushed aside by the Democratic establishment in the DSCC in favor of someone who eventually ended up losing to Pat Toomey in that uh, republic in that Senate race in uh, Pennsylvania. So, you know, I think you're going to it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in Kentucky. We saw it establishment favorite lose last time. Is it enough to have a populist and a populist progressive in that state um, go up against a very controversial libertarian lawmaker? I would say we'll have to see. Well, <laughs> Kelly and Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. The New York Times is reporting that back in May, President Biden secretly signed an order authorizing the military to redeploy special forces to Somalia. This is in efforts to target al-Shabaab leaders in the country. The move reverses former President Trump's decision to withdraw there. 
And this comes as the country's new president, Hassan Mohammed, welcomed Biden's decision to send troops in order to deal with the terrorism group. But some question that the U.S. government is pulling the strings for their own gain. The former president of Somalia had rejected a U.S. oil and gas deal back in February to protect the country's resources. Some are now pointing to the new president as an arm of the U.S. that will enable the transfer of these resources. Political anthropologist at UC Irvine and contributing editor to Africa is a Country, Samar Musa al-Balushi, joins us to discuss. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be with you. So I think what most people are going to want to help you to help us understand is what motivated the withdrawal and what now is the you know, reason that's been given for why we're getting back involved. Great. So I think the first place that it's important to start is the question of how we got here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and to recall that the U.S. never formally declared war on Somalia. Um, it was under the Bush administration that the U.S. began to develop concerns about the situation on the ground. And it was at that time that the U.S. backed an Ethiopian-led military operation invasion of the country that toppled uh, the government. So it's been over 15 years now that the U.S. has been involved and yet never formally declared war. As far as the recent developments are concerned, um, the reason Trump uh, withdrew was ostensibly to uh, uh, downplay the U.S. involvement in Somalia. And I think it's important to recall here that uh, the, the decision to withdraw was actually more of a symbolic one, a mm -hmm. symbolic gesture rather than anything else because the troops were effectively sent to neighboring countries like Ethiopia and Kenya. And from there, they have continued to commute to work as the military likes to call it. They have been fl flying in regularly into Somalia to conduct the very trainings that the Biden administration now says it's going to continue. So I think we have to ask ourselves how different um, of a policy is this at the end of the day? We also have to ask ourselves how and why it is that the U.S. is so reliant on African troops that it says that it's there to train, right? So the U.S. never explicitly wanted to deploy U.S. troops to the front lines. That has been a very clear uh, policy of consistently of all administrations. And instead, it is putting African troops on the front lines, knowing that Americans are likely not to care if those troops die or if they uh, actually engage in war crimes themselves. Hmm. So why then, if the posture of the conflict is still the same, would Biden choose to get rid of, you know, not take advantage of the plausible deniability of the commuting setup and go ahead and fully uh, put troops back into the country? So the reason is precisely because the U.S. troops are not going to be the ones on the front lines, mm. right? So they don't need to worry about uh, accountability for uh, crimes that the U.S. troops themselves might commit. And effectively, this is why, as I was saying, there's not that much difference whether they're commuting in or whether they're permanently based there, because at the end of the day, it's not U.S. troops that are standing on the front lines. So these troops that are going to be uh, on the front lines, who are these guys? Are they are we once again arming moderates, quote unquote, who will ultimately then use our weapons and our training against us in some future fashion? I think that's an excellent question. I think Americans have a desire to think of wars and of cons as consisting of good guys and bad guys, right? And the reality on the ground is simply not that uh, not that simple. 
So the people that we have been training have included African Union peacekeeping forces, and they've included Somali security forces. Now, we've been engaged in those trainings for 15 years. And at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, how and why has it taken 15 years to do these trainings? And how and why are we still in the same place that we were 15 years ago in the sense that there is no peace and stability, right? Now, uh, when you look more closely at what has transpired, um, many of the troops have defected. Many of the troops sell their arms on the black market because sometimes they simply don't get paid. And many of those troops develop loyalties with other entities that makes it a far more gray area situation than we would like to believe, you know, from here in the United States. Right. I, and I, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's not even it's by Americans, you know, thinking, well, it's a it's a good versus evil situation. It's the government. It's the experts the so-called experts uh, responsible for these policies who act that way, even though time and time again we see it's it's not the case. And Biden, you know, chart, did chart a very different course in Afghanistan, but now we have this involvement in Ukraine. We have this involvement uh, elsewhere, and it, it's it's is there a sense that we're you know we we use these proxy battles that we we have other people and we're behind them and we're moving them and, and motivating them but we're we're having them fight our battles for us because there is no appetite among the american people for actual direct confrontation involving american forces that's absolutely right we've been relying on proxies and what the u.s government again over consistent administrations has done is enact laws and procedures that make it possible for us to rely on proxies, right? So it makes it possible for us to direct funds. It makes it possible for us to go and do the trainings. And uh, most Americans have no idea that 22,000 African peacekeeping troops have been on the ground for the last 15 years. That's a lot of troops. And that's a number that simply, that would generate interest if it were American troops, right? But because they're African, it simply doesn't. It's it's incredibly rare that we even hear about the role that they're that they're playing. It's rare that we hear about their own deaths. It's impossible to get figures about their deaths. And that's another element that's super important here. And that is how hard it is for journalists to actually enter into Somalia to do the coverage, to get us the information that we need for Americans, right, to be making decisions when we go to the polls about this war that was never declared uh, on a country that you know, has been uh, suffering now for 15 years. Can you Dr. tell us why, sorry, uh, why are we Why are we there in Somalia fighting al-Shabaab? I mean, what makes Somalia different from, let's say, Nigeria, where there's Boko Haram? Uh, you know, why are we not fighting, I guess, every terrorist organization all throughout the entire continent of Africa? Is it because of the geo, the, the location of Somalia and how it feeds into the Red Sea towards that Suez Canal? Is, is that... Is it just because of we're trying to protect our ships? So the geopolitical location is extremely, extremely important. And uh, as you mentioned, it's located on the Red Sea, on the Indian Ocean. And that is a hugely, hugely important uh, location as far as global trade is concerned. Now, uh, north of Somalia in Djibouti, that's where the U.S. military has its largest uh, presence, right? And there, the U.S. has been competing with all kinds of other entities that have similarly been setting up a military presence. That includes China, that includes the European Union, that includes Japan. 
Uh, and the Gulf states, I should mention, have also become increasingly involved in the region. Now, every single one of these governments has interests in resources. They have interest in oil. That includes the United States. And so that gives you the kind of broader picture of the competition for resources, competition for access to uh, um, regionally important ports for global trade. Mm. Yeah. So that's well, what it comes so, down to, money. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. What do you see? Uh, you know, what is what is the next step in this in in this escalation, if it is an escalation? So the part that we haven't touched on is actually the other element of the announcement from the Biden administration this week, and that is the decision to maintain Trump's flexible approach to to drone warfare. Now, when Biden came into office, he announced that he would be doing a review of the drone policy. And the reason he needed to do this review is because during Trump's time in office, he enacted um, a designation of uh, calling Somalia a quote unquote area of active hostilities, knowing, right, that we never declared war on the country. And so it had to come up with a special designation in order to legitimate giving the U.S. military discretionary discretionary authority in order to launch drone strikes without White House permission. Now, during Trump's time in office, this meant that drone strikes skyrocketed and uh, the number of people who were killed just jumped to between 900,000 people. Um, and that's a conservative estimate. So when Biden came in, he said, maybe we need to rethink this policy. Clearly, people are raising concerns about the number of people killed and about the number of drone strikes themselves. And so we were led to believe that this was part of Biden's um, push towards ending endless war and that it might have a more ethical approach to its foreign policy. And yet what was announced on Monday as well is that, in fact, it's going to maintain this flexible approach to drone, drone policy, which means that the U.S. military will not have to consult the White House. It will simply go through the State Department uh, you know, a figure on the ground, but will not have to consult the White House before it launches a drone strike. So this is a tremendously worrying development for Somalis in terms of the prospect for war from the air. Mm. So they, they reviewed the drone policy and said, A-OK, drone policy. Unbelievable. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they would they would tell you differently, <laughs> but at the end of the day, that's... My goodness. Well, uh, Dr. Samar Musa Al-Balushi, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll have more rising in just a minute. Kim, what's on your radar today? Well, back in January, there were numerous reports put out by outlets such as Bloomberg News and DW reporting that repeated booster doses of the COVID-19 vaccine could weaken the immune system. This news came after European regulators warned repeated COVID-19 doses could have the opposite effect of what was intended. Rather than strengthening the immune system against COVID-19, repeated dosing could cause the immune system to not just do nothing, but do the opposite. Here's Bloomberg News reporting. Repeat, bo bo repeat booster doses every four months could eventually weaken the immune response and tire out people, according to the European Medicines Agency. Instead, countries should leave more time between booster programs and tie them to the onset of the cold season in each hemisphere following the blueprint set out by influenza vaccination strategies, the agency said. DW News reported the same thing, but also added statements from the WHO, which stated back in January that quote, COVID-19 vaccines needed to elicit immune responses that are broad, strong, and long-lasting in order to reduce the need for successive booster doses. 
They also went on to say a vaccination strategy based on repeated booster doses of the original vaccine composition is unlikely to be appropriate or sustainable. Now, the Israelis also sounded the same alarm even earlier than the Europeans in the WHO. This past December, the New York Times reported, quote, weighing the potential benefits of another booster shot against the risks, some scientists, including a few on the Israeli advisory panel, have voiced concern that too many vaccinations might cause a sort of immune system fatigue, compromising the body's ability to fight the coronavirus, particularly among older people. But despite the warnings, the FDA and the CDC opted to authorize fourth doses of the vaccine for certain vulnerable populations anyway. The reason? Well, there just wasn't enough data showing a weakened immune response was a real threat. The data regarding the efficacy of the fourth dose was minimal, but so was any data that showed there would be any negative effects. The vaccine wears off, people are vulnerable and worried, the government decided to do something. Not to mention there were subsequent reports that started to come out in February by outlets such as Reuters and USA Today that said the idea vaccines weaken the immune system was simply a conspiracy theory, that the vaccines do not weaken the immune system, but instead strengthen it. I wonder how the scientists at the European Medicines Agency, WHO, and the Israelis felt about being essentially categorized as conspiracy theorists. But, well, fast forward to now in May, it's been a few more months with many countries administering fourth doses of the vaccine. Here's Dr. Jennifer Ashton with Good Morning America talking about the latest data. Dr. Ashton here. We were trying to get a handle on, yes, uh, you got some new data on boosters. There's a here. new published study out in Lancet, uh, the journal Lancet Infectious Disease, about the fourth dose and what happens to our antibody levels. It is not a surprise that they've released new data confirming that after the fourth dose of Pfizer or Moderna, that antibody levels rise significantly. They surge. Uh, in the several weeks after that dose. We've known that for a while, but here are the caveats. We don't know how long that lasts, number one. Um, and our immune response, remember, is not just about antibodies. It's about that T-cell response also, which is, you can't really measure as well as just a pure antibody level. And it's about whether or not they're blocking or neutralizing antibodies to the variant that we're seeing. So uh, when people hear these headlines, they shouldn't be surprised. Yes, of course, you're going to get a, a surge in your antibody levels, but how long that lasts is the issue. And it's certainly not just about more boosting for everyone. People who have high antibody levels, there's the potential. I want to underscore the potential. We haven't seen any evidence of this, um, of this immune phenomenon known as tolerance, where if you already have high antibody levels and you get another booster, that your immune system can start to say, well, what what am I needed for and can kind of start to wow. shut down. Wow. So um, we if you're in that category of people who the FDA and CDC is recommending to get a booster 50 and over 65 and over with a with a chronic medical condition. Yes, by all means. But everyone else don't think that more boosting is the answer. We don't know that that's the case yet. Okay, so they still don't know if boosting causes a weakened immune system, but they're still worried about it. It's a real concern. So if you're in a compromised category, by all means, do what you need to do to protect yourself. But for everyone else, they're saying, don't just think more is better. 
This, by the way, comes as the FDA has now given the green light to give the first round of booster shots to kids between 5 to 11 years old. The CDC still has yet to sign off on it, but with the amount of pressure put on regulatory agencies by parents and teachers unions, there's little doubt that they will authorize that third dose for kids. So even though there's little data still out there, there is some, and I want to show it to you. So Walgreens keeps excellent records of who is catching COVID. They break down their tests into several categories. People who are unvaccinated, people who have had one dose, people who've had both doses of the vaccine within the past five months, people who've had both doses of the vaccine over five months ago, those who've had one booster within five months, and then those who had one booster over five months ago. They don't have any data on those who've had the second booster dose, but we can see a pattern from the data that we do have. So let's take a look here. So this graph shows us the percentage of tests that have come back positive in each category. And you can see that the unvaccinated and those who've had either their two doses or booster within the past five months are seeing about the same positivity rate of about 21%. Although those who've had a booster within five months have a slightly higher positivity rate at 21.7%. Now, people who had one dose of the vaccine have a positivity rate of 26%. People who had two doses over five months ago have a positivity rate of 31.2%. And people who had three doses over five months ago have a positivity rate of 32.6%. Now, this graph shows the proportion of tests in each category and the percentage in each category that came back positive. So just uh, let's this kind of just lets you look at it, the same sort of data, but from a different angle. You can see that the unvaccinated made up 23.9% of the total tests, but only 18.5% of the positive tests. Whereas the triple vaccinated over five months ago made up 30% of the tests, but 36.1% of the positive results. Now, what this doesn't show us is how severe the illnesses are. So even if you're more likely to catch COVID after the vaccine or booster wears off, what is unknown is whether or not it's severe. It matters a lot less if you're extra vulnerable to catching the virus if it presents like a cold, for example. And it matters a lot more if a weakened immune system also means having a tough time fighting off the disease. This part is the unknown at this point, but I imagine more data will come out soon enough. So, Bree and Robbie, I also want to mention that I did post on my Twitter account. There's more data besides just Walgreens. There's data that's come out from Chicago showing the same pattern. They don't break it down exactly the same way. They just have unvaccinated versus vaccinated. And vaccinated are seeing much higher rates of infection than the unvaccinated. Seattle, King County also has the same sort of data broken down. They do it by age group. It's really interesting to see that data um, where it actually shows that The older you get, if you're unvaccinated, you seem to be more likely to catch COVID. Whereas young kids, for example, in that five to 11 year age group, the the unvaccinated children seem to be catching COVID at a lower rate than the vaccinated children in that age group. Um, And there is also more data with the CDC. They've got similar data showing five to 11 year olds having higher rates of infection in the vaccinated group. That is the the data that's out there, of course, like I mentioned, you know, and, and as Dr. Jennifer Ashton mentioned, I, I don't know if the experts have really like parsed through this data to fully say, okay, yeah, it, it does look like maybe there is this response. And again, we don't know what that means. So maybe maybe you are more likely to catch it. That's what the data seems to suggest. But how severe will it be when you do? 
time, unfortunately, we have to wait and find out because we have to see how this next wave goes, who ends up in the hospital, how does that pan out? We don't really know yet. But there is that alarm that's been sounded despite, you know, certain outlets saying, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. Other outlets are saying, no, it isn't. We still don't know yet. And now we've got data coming out showing maybe there's something actually to it. Unclear. Yeah, I I think it is unclear still. You know, as long as it's honestly uh, portrayed, that that might be fine. I've said many times, I think everyone is eventually going to get COVID or get it multiple. It's it's so contagious and there's very little we can do. So if if this, you know, makes you slightly more likely but does protect you from the worst side effects, that might be a choice many people would rationally make. But they have to know they're making that choice. So we have to we have to actually study. You can't you can't give it to people under false pretenses. Yeah, you have to have informed consent yeah. to this. Sure. I'm curious, how are they um, tracking people testing positive? Are these people are these self-reported? How is Walgreens keeping track of you know who subsequently? I, I understand that people come in to get the shot, but how are they are they relying on people self-reporting on whether or not they've taken the test and tested positive for COVID? I believe the Walgreens data is actually on their testing of people themselves. So some people can take an at-home test, but a lot of people actually go in and get an actual PCR test done rather than just the rapid antigen because they maybe need it for travel or work or they want to be sure they're, they're, you know, they get a couple of different at-home tests and they, some say positive, some say negative, and they want to know for sure. So I'm pretty sure that Walgreens is actually taking data based on the tests that they're administering, maybe in local labs or, you know, they're collecting that data. So it's not self-reporting. I from see. what I'm understanding from Walgreens. Yeah, that's interesting. The only thing I would want to know is whether or not, you know, they're controlling for all of the tests that are being given. So, for example, I've never taken a COVID test in a Walgreens, and I would be in that high risk, you know, uh, twice vaccinated, once boosted over five months ago category. And so yeah. I'm just curious, are people who go in to take tests at Walgreens, you know, uh, the kind of hypervigilant people who are also getting double vaxxed and boosted? And are we seeing a kind of just a over-reporting there versus people who maybe got only one shot or, or two shots and aren't the kind of people who go in regularly and get professionally tested at a, an, an institution like that? That's the only uh, follow-up information that I'd like to see because yeah. I, Obviously, if it is true that there's this correlation with being more susceptible to catching COVID, people should know about that. Yeah, it's a good question. But the the data that Walgreens, they're actually really great about this data. And what they're putting out there is not, okay, it's it's not the sheer number of this is how many people in this group uh, came out positive. They're actually doing it proportionately based on that group. So they're dividing it already. So they're saying, okay, Brianna, you're only going to be they're, they're looking at the positive tests for people in your category, for example, who are boosted over five months ago. They take everybody that they've tested in that group and then they say what percentage of them are coming out positive against the test that they've taken. So they're not actually weighting that against the entirety of the, the, right, the whole but group. If, but if I'm a one booster person who is also maybe the kind of person, not to stereotype, but who might not also be as vigilant about testing and going in regularly, they're never going to capture a positive test if I don't go in and get tested, right? As a, as a right, one booster or a non-boosted person or non-vax right. person. 
that's why they're doing it as a percentage rather than saying rather than as a as a I'm trying to I'm having a difficult time explaining this, but <laughs> rather than as a whole percentage of the whole group, because you're right, like more people might go in who are more vigilant. That's what you're saying. Right. So they they would maybe be more likely to go in. So there's a higher proportion of them taking the test. Yeah. Walgreens is saying it doesn't matter the way they did the math is that it, they're taking the sample size that is existing for each group already divided out. And then they're saying what percentage? So they're saying 23% of the total tests were unvaccinated people, but only 18% of the total tests came back positive in that particular group. Whereas the boosted group, there was only 20 something, 26% that came in in the total testing group to be tested, but they came out as a whopping 30% of the positive tests. Mm. So they're doing it proportionately rather than, because that is the big criticism that people made in the beginning about other data is that, well, you know, you're looking at, obviously if there's more people vaccinated then a higher proportion of them are gonna come out, at, you know, positive, testing positive for COVID. Walgreens already controlled for that in the way that they broke down the demographics. So it shows, so it, it's already it's already controlled mm. for that basically. Yeah. In Very the interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Kim, and we'll be back with more rising in just a minute. The Biden administration is shutting down its disinformation board. This after myriad issues from its controversial czar Nina Yankovich, who famously was one of the. Uh, people saying that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation, uh, probably not a good viewpoint for the person who's going to police disinformation to hold. Nevertheless, uh, Washington Post reporter Taylor Lorenz, who broke the story, so she framed the board's demise as an accomplishment of right wing rhetoric. And I speed read through this story, which, again, I, I, I have appreciated some of Taylor's reporting in the past. Uh, this is a scoop that she got exclusively, so good for her. But how she frames this story, I find very suspect. So I, nowhere in this story, so it's all built around how, uh, like I'll read, the headline is how the Biden administration let right-wing attacks derail its disinformation efforts. So the framing of the story is that this is a very bad thing that has happened because the Tucker Carlson's and the Jack Posobiec's and I guess the risings of the world were, you know, relentlessly against this woman and were doing all sorts of personal attacks because we made fun of her TikTok videos. Nowhere in this story do the words Hunter Biden laptop appear. There is no acknowledgement in this story of the of what I think was extremely valid criticism of the person in this role was that she has a very selective in the past view of what is disinformation, that she fell for that same thing. And I, I think it's extremely irresponsible not to mention that at all in the story. Yeah, it's also stolen valor from the theater kid community. I mean, it was her big <laughs> theater energy that ultimately brought her down. We all know that. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I think that, you know, I, don't, I haven't had a chance to read the story yet, but to the extent that they don't talk about the hearings that we discussed on this show and how poorly the uh, people were answering questions about how she was selected and whether or not there was any discussion of whether she was going to be able to handle uh, elements of misinformation coming from different political spheres in an unbiased way. I mean, that really is the story here. And I might have some more sympathy for her if that if it was, was just her vibes that were so off-putting to people. You know, I, I, as an acapella queen, will defend a theater queen. But at the end of the day, it's the substance. And it's a shame that that's not covered in the article. I mean, here, here are the first, yeah. the first two paragraphs. On the morning of April 27th, DHS announced creation of the Disinformation Governance Board. 
blah, blah, blah. The Biden administration tapped Nina Yankovic, a well-known figure in the field of fighting disinformation and extremism. The next graph, they describe her as someone with extensive experience in the field of disinformation, which has er emerged as an urgent issue. Author of two books, How to Be a Woman Online, How to Lose the Information War. Her career also featured stints at nonpartisan think tanks. Within the small community of disinformation researchers, her work was well regarded. Like, how many, this is thrice <laughs> praising her. Again, a woman who got a very important, uh, and so did lots of other people, that's fine, but to never acknowledge that one of the reasons conservatives are innately skeptical, the, maybe the main reason of this kind of whole disinformation framing is that a lot of things that got labeled that way have, have proven to be much more complicated and worthy of discussion. The lab leak, a lot of other COVID stuff, and then, and then very much so the, uh, the laptop story. Liberalism well, means also, never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important also to point out that this wasn't really just about her. I mean, if they're shutting down the entire disinformation governance board, then it wasn't just about her and replacing her because she's got problems and she has mm. this, you know, history of not exactly being, um, you know, uh, bipartisan or or at least not part nonpartisan. So they're shutting down the entire board. This is a good thing. Obviously, I think that they received a lot of pressure when it came to uh, from from people in Congress questioning, saying, why are we having this board? And, and it was a really good question. It's beyond this woman. What was the purpose of this disinformation governance board? What were they going to do? They said they didn't have any policing power, but they were to they they answered to the Department of Homeland Security, which certainly is a is a. A department that has policing power. So what were what was this board even going to do? Right. In my opinion, it couldn't be shut down fast enough. Thank goodness they they did. I mean this. And we and we and actually we should clarify that they've only said it's being paused. Paused. Uh, now right. in the world world of government agencies, you know, are they going to restart it? Who knows? I, I would think it's unlikely. And I the pause I is basically because of the backlash. But again, this story is saying the backlash was that's ba that's a what a what a shame that this backlash has caused this result. I mean, you could, right, you could entirely reconstruct this as a, like, democratic accountability. The people spoke out against being policed or informally policed by this kind of person, this kind of agency, and now they're not doing it. Hooray, that's a good outcome. But the newspaper is just wholly... Well, well let me ask you both this. Do we think that the idea of fact-checking itself, the idea of there being any kind of uh, authority one could turn to to have a sense of what is actually happening in the world is just kind of dead in the modern era? The fact-checking industry... should not be the government. Yeah, well, it should not be the government. And then the fact-checking industry has gotten really weird. Yeah. It has, it has a language that doesn't even sound like the, like they, the way they say disinfo and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. It's like, do you hear yourself? Fa Facebook's fact-checking is... Awful. It's as far worse than what Twitter does, in my view. Facebook's fact-checking is the worst of all. It's not even. It's not the company doing it. They they've hired. They they have designated fact-checking organizations that are many of them. Some of them are conservative, but many of them are just like left-wing activist environmental oh, and COVID ex groups. Explicitly white supremacists. I saw a clip recently of AOC skewering uh, um, Mark Zuckerberg over some pretty pernicious. You know, not just. I'm calling you racist, but like expressly white supremacist site so that we're all on the rolls as fact checkers over at Facebook. Yeah, face Facebook's fact checking is atrocious. So the entire the entire uh, fact checking industry has really gone off the rails into just yeah. rank partisanship, um, and it's it's no, it is it is not 
something has gone wrong there. Honestly, it, it, in fact, I'm, I'm like less likely to try if I hear it's a it's a fact check from an official fact checking partner or a fact checking organization. Like you know, those people are the are the most like the most ideological of all, the most yeah. hostile to to the right or to libertarians or to or to really it's a hostility to non-governmental sources of information which you'd, you'd want fact checkers to fact check the lies of the government but they are so often they view the well the government said that this is how it is so you're very right. how, you know how dare you question that yeah and you yeah. see that a lot part of it is the failure of and the collapse of the journalism industry where there are no more independent journalists and localities that people have a relationship to and know and love in their local paper and who are doing that kind of independent reporting that serves their community. And another part of it, I think, Robbie, you're right, the same way that so many newspapers just print police reports without interrogating mm-hmm. that bias, yep. Yep. they print statements from press secretaries and, and um, administrations as though that's just the factual truth. Right. You know, Jen Psaki was able to get up there on the podium so many times and just say, well, we don't think that we have the authority to cancel student debt until they FOIA a memo showing that they very well know that they have the authority to cancel student debt, right? And reporters on the whole never really pushed back against those kinds of flat and easily debunkable claims. So we are in a real crisis, and I'm not sure what to do about it, especially with journalism going the way it does and so little, re- so few resources going to the kind of independent reporting that's really necessary. I think the people are fact checking just fine, actually. I I mean, I don't think fact checkers and I don't mean fact checkers are fact checking just fine. I think we individual people are fact checking just fine because we're holding these fact checkers accountable for their lack of fact checking. Right. So like when it comes to the Hunter Biden laptop story, a lot of people just didn't listen to the fact checkers. And they said, you know what, forget you. I'll make up my own mind. I'll listen to the facts myself. So I think the people can be trusted to fact check each and every story on their own, like we always have since the beginning of time, even when our crazy uncle lies to us and tells us tall tales. So it's like, now are we gonna be living in an era where where, uh, you you can't tell a kid, when I was in school back in the day and I used to have to walk up hills both ways for newspapers, for shoes, (laughs) and making up all kinds of stories without the kids saying to you, false, no, you are misinformation. (laughs) You are leading me tall tales. And, and part of the issue is there, the fact checkers, the, so many and so many journalists today are in such echo chambers of like-minded people, of extremely, of like radically like-minded people, at least on our show, not to toot our own horn, like we have different, some different ideological perspectives. So we can, you know, not exactly fact check each other, but challenge each other or, you know, press each other to, to consider different arguments or at least understand what the other side says. And that is not something that happens in mainstream or progressive media or to some extent not in conservative media as well they're kind of serving a fact-checking role but there's not a lot of you know in, internal uh, debate the, the, those kinds of debates which were very common in the media only happening here on rising a little, little right. plug for us <laughs> so tomorrow we will be speaking uh, by the way speaking of terrible fact checkers uh, Facebook is censoring homemade baby formula recipes that are being shared by users on the site going to look at that. It's pretty, uh, pretty alarming uh, example of exactly what I was just talking about. And a new survey shows America's public schools lost at least 1.2 million students since 2020 with no signs of a rebound. We'll discuss that tomorrow. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Also, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check us out. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.